How's that looking to you? Pretty good, I think. Look at that. You can see your face in those shoes now. They're shining. Yeah, but these are suede. Will not be presented at this time. You want me to shine your other shoe, too? So we may bring you this special podcast. How about your socks? No, thanks. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive! A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bulldogs, tree robbers, bank robbers, ass-kickers, shit-kickers, and murderers. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. <laughs> it's a real nice surprise. Still alive. It's a real nice surprise. There's a cage fighter in London named Mike the Nightmare Noon. It just so happens that I earn some of my money out of punching people in the face. That guy is not this guy. I have to face the fact that I have the mind of an athlete. And the body of an intellectual. This Mike Noon calls himself the funniest comedian you've never heard of. Crowded subway, and I look down, there's a guy's hand in my pocket. All I can think was, boy, I hope he's after my money. This Mike Noon is open for some of the biggest names in show business, getting laughs and entertaining crowds all over the globe. In my job, you gotta be strong, gotta go out, do things wrong, make mistakes, act like a jerk. It isn't easy, but that's my work. Along the way, he's performed a series of one-man shows and a five-city tour for a rock band where he left thousands of people screaming, We want the band. I, I know a little bit about cults. I, I used to belong to one years ago. I was a Harry Krishna, Branch Davidian, Macrobiotic, Zen Buddhist, Kung Fu, Born Again, Weight Watcher for Peace. And in the earliest days of Almost Live, Mike Noon was brought in like a veteran pinch hitter to deliver some surefire laughs. <laughs> and Mike Noon, the funniest comedian you never heard of, now lives in a place you won't believe, where the time is 14 hours and some 7,500 miles ahead of the Pacific Northwest. Mike Noon, ahead of his time. Have you ever had a bad day? One of those really bad days. Not just a marginal bad day, but one of those big ones. One of those days when, when your son calls up and says, Dad, I quit medical school to become a shepherd. One of those days when you mix up the mace and the breath freshener. And police say, what the mugger look like? And you say, I don't know, but he smells good. From his home in Thailand, here is comedian and self-confessed golf junkie, Mike Noon. Mike, as we record this, it is Wednesday for me and Thursday yeah. for you in Thailand. Yeah. Since you have that advantage, can you tell me what is going to happen tomorrow? Oh, yes. Yeah, sure. The uh, the Suns are going to win. Oh, okay. okay. I'm going to make a lot of money. No Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so d describe what it is like there and pronounce the name of the city in Thailand that you live in. I, I live in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Chiang Mai, and, okay. Right, and I should know how many thousands of miles, but I don't. I'm guessing like 3,000 miles. Oh, no. It's a 26-hour flight. And a hell of a lot longer swim. 
That's for sure. Yes. Now, it's a long way. When's the last time you came back to to the U.S.? Has it been a while? It was about six years ago. I brought my wife and her nieces, and we flew to San Francisco and drove up the coast mm. and came to Seattle and met a bunch of old friends, and it was just glorious. That's great. How did you adapt to uh, life in Thailand? That just seems impossibly exotic to me. Is life more normal to you there now than it, than it was in the United States, or it's just different? It's, uh, I love it here. I, I first came here, I was working on a cruise ship, and the ship docked in Padia, and, uh, which in the old days was like the most depraved place I'd ever seen in my life. Really? I mean, there are just thousands of bars and bar girls. And, and then I ended up here because a friend of mine in Seattle had a friend in Chiang Mai, and we came to visit him and play golf. And uh, I loved it here. The largest city of Northern Thailand that feels like a village, full of amazing people from all over the world, unique cuisine, and friendly locals. Sunshine, good attitude, and active lifestyle makes Chiang Mai the perfect place to charge your body and soul. And then I fell in love and got married. I've been married to a Thai lady for 13 years, and it's it's been the best part of my life. I love it. Fantastic. Well, we'll get into that a bit more, too. Uh, and, of course, the, the uh, ostensible reason for asking you to be a part of this podcast is because you were a part of Almost Live in its beginning nascent days. But but let's uh, yeah. back up even more than that. Where where do you hail from? Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Detroit. And then just south of Detroit on an island called Gross Eel. Oh yeah. And uh, I, I remember the movie Gross Point. Is it, is it like the same gross? No, it's two different places. Ah. Like Gross Point was a rich suburb. Yeah. And Gross Eel was, uh, had about 10,000 people on this island. My high school had like 400 people in it. How did you get and, to the, uh, how did you get to the place? Did you have to ferry over or did you, was there a bridge? There were two bridges. And they came across from Wyandotte and Trenton. Wyandotte had five chemical companies in it. Oh, and great. Probably the worst air in the whole country. <laughs> it's just awful. I'm glad you got out of there. Jeez, for crying out loud. Oh, yeah. So, 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 a nice place. It was good. So you went to high school there too, right? Yeah. And right. then, and then what happened? Where did you go? Did you want to go to college? Yeah. Uh, actually what happened is my dad quit his job, uh, to go into business with a guy in Seattle. Oh. And the whole family moved out to Seattle. And so I went to the University of Washington. So I went from a high school of 400 to a college of 17,000, and I was just bumping into things. I had no clue what I was doing. Now, going back to high school or grade school days, for that matter, were you? Mm. Uh, I always love to know this. Were you, did you think you were funny? Did you were you did you gravitate towards comedy? Were you interested in it, or was it something that wasn't even on your radar? Uh, my dad was funny, and. And I think my mom was too, and uh, they were very social people. So I started playing the ukulele in high school, I think. You, th you think you were? 
Did you start writing funny songs uh, from the uh, from early age? No, I wrote funny stuff in English class. I just figured the teachers were bored to tears with <laughs> these essays. <laughs> so I juiced mine up, you know, and I tried that's to kinda, make them funny. That's kind of what I did. I hope I haven't already told this story, but uh, I was in the sixth grade, I can remember, and it, and it became a point of great pride when the teacher would say, and we'd like uh, Mary and Larry and Pat to come up and read their essays. Yeah. And so, because we'd be assigned to write about something the, the night before. And I tried to write funny stuff, and I got called on a lot because I could make the, the class laugh and the teacher like that. But one day she says yeah. all of that, and I realize, oh, my God, shit. I, I didn't – I forgot to write anything. Oh, but but it's such an honor to be called up there. So so I just went up there with a blank piece of paper and thought, I, I, I can make my way through this. And I just started, <laughs> I just started making stuff up and as if I'm reading it. And my, everything was going along fine until I realized I'd gone on too long. I was going on, I went on for about four or five minutes on a single piece of paper. Nobody can write that small or read that small. Then the teacher kind of sidles up alongside me, takes a look and said, Pat, you can go sit down now. But, but I, I didn't, I didn't well, get a bad grade for it. I should have, but I didn't. I'm in awe of that. Well, you do it all, Good you did you. it your, you did it your whole career. We'll talk more about that, you know, when microphones go out, the, the spotlight fails, oh. uh, the heating goes out, all that stuff. But so, so, uh, but even though you were writing funny stuff and playing the ukulele, as you played mm-hmm. the ukulele, did you think, you know what? I could be another tiny Tim. Well, he wasn't around yet, but oh. I uh, I definitely wanted to be an entertainer, but I was I was also incredibly shy. Yeah. And uh, but isn't that true of just about every entertainer? I don't know. Like you, I heard your interview with Ross Schaefer, and like I felt I always felt he was the opposite of me. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. Very gregarious and very comfortable in social situations. Yeah, yeah. And, very very confident guy. Yeah, uh, for sure. But but I met I meet an equal number of people that it just uh, they can, they can't even carry on a conversation with another person. But you get them in front of an audience, and boom, they change into another person. So it's uh, it's, it's totally different, isn't it? I, yeah. Did you feel that, or did did you feel it behind a microphone? Or I'm not at your level, obviously, but I I do a lot of emceeing and speaking and things like that, and I've never, for the most part, never been intimidated. Oh, sure, you know, once in a while I get the dry mouth thing going for whatever reason, but for the most part, it's easy, and the bigger the crowd, the easier it is for some reason, at least for me. I agree. Because they become, they, they become amorphous. They don't become, you're not really looking at any one person, and so you can, I don't know, there's a comfort in that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I also love the idea of a spotlight in my face because then I don't have to see anyone. I could just feel it, you know. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Those old those people who say pick out someone in the room and do your show for them. Yeah. I could never do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. So so uh, anyway, we kind of skipped ahead because yeah. so you're at the UW. Right. You have not yet begun. A career, I think I just read in your book, and I'll talk about your book in a bit here, but you said, I never planned to be a comedian. It just happened. Yeah. 
So how did it happen? Do you remember how it just happened? Well, I was, I went from the ukulele to the banjo. Which is always a uh, chick magnet. Chicks love banjos. Oh boy, do they. <laughs> My instrument was not a French horn and not a tuba, but it's in between, called a baritone. Really? Now you talk about a oh, chick magnet. Yeah. yeah. We made bad choices. Terrible. Bad choices. But I, uh, I played at uh, college parties. And I played it, uh, we used to go out and serenade the sororities and I'd play like comedy songs. And, uh, you say we, did you have a partner or two? No. It, it, well, actually in college, I was in a very small fraternity and, uh, there are three or four of us that go out and we'd sing. And at the parties, there'd be three or four of us, but there was no, uh, like group really. And then I started singing in coffee houses. And, and all of this is around Seattle? Or yeah. Where you travel? No, this was around, this was in college. And there was a place called the Pamir House in Seattle. It was a little tiny place in the U district. And, uh, I'd go sing there. It was folk singers. And it wasn't comedy, but I'd mm-hmm. do comedy anyway. So you must have stood out because of that. I guess so. I was, uh, I was doing folk music too. And, but I'd keep throwing in stuff, and I keep trying to write my own stuff. So when you when you say you were throwing stuff in, you were doing jokes as well, right? Not really. It was mostly comedy songs, and uh, and I'd put like jokes in the middle of them. I sort of bookended mm-hmm. uh, transition. Yeah, yeah, but I was I was never an improv guy, and I wish I had been. It would have been much better preparation. But I always came out like I was in journalism in college. So I was always the guy that wrote stuff and then presented it. Did you want to be a newspaper guy? Yeah, that was my plan. I was going to write for, I was like the sports editor at the Daily at the UW, and I was going to go into journalism. But then I started singing in coffee houses and bars, and that all changed. Well, the Daily at the UW has fostered so much talent. Oh. It's just astounding, the people, including Keister, of course, but a lot of other folks, too. Yes. A real hotbed for creativity oh. back in the day, anyway. I had a photographer for the sports section, and he was this big roly-poly guy, and I thought, that's It's all Bob he- Peterson, isn't it? Bob Peterson. And yes, and he became just a national famous photographer, right? And and one of my oldest best friends. I mean, terrific guy. I was already a photographer, and I knew I wanted to do that, but there were no photography classes, so I decided. Well, the thing I like to photograph the most people, and sociology is the study of people, so I became a sociology major. I worked on the daily, I worked on the yearbook, shooting athletics at the University of Washington. They, they, I was one of the first photographers to use 35 millimeter telephoto lenses on the football field. So I could zoom in on the faces of the coaches and the quarterbacks and the running backs. But I agree, there were lots of people who came out of the daily. So at some point, you, when did you say, you know what? I, I maybe I'm not going to be a journalist. I, I was kind of doing this coffee house thing as a as a fun little activity, but now maybe that's how I make my living. Did, was there a moment where that light came on or a realization took place? 
Well, I knew I loved to do it. You know, and I loved singing in bars. Uh, the guy who owned the Pamir house bought a place down on Skid Row called the Alley Cat. And it was the Longshoreman's Bar. So he started bringing in his folk singers from the from the uh, Pamir house to the Alley Cat, which was a very strange combination. And I was singing there. Wouldn't a Longshoreman's crowd be kind of a tough crowd? Oh, God, scary. It's <laughs> just frightening. <laughs> and I... So I just tried to make friends with the longshoreman. I thought, I, I gotta do this, or I'm gonna get killed, you know. <laughs> well, you're, you're still around, I'm so that's still, good news. He brought in a bouncer one time, and it was like giving the longshoreman a gift. They just kind of lined up to see who could get to him first. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> oh it was just God. terrible. I've never, I've never understood anybody who says, yep, that's what I want to be, a bouncer. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't care how big you are. You're, ne- you're, no. you're ultimately going to meet your match someday. But then I got drafted, and uh, I went down to Fort Ord, and I was down there for two years. Hurrah, hurrah, I shout the jubilee. Hurrah, hurrah, the Army's a life for me. My uniform is a masterpiece. The seat of my pants looks like a valise. I smile at a girl, and she hollers, police, I'm in the Army now. And I started singing in a bar in Monterey uh, called the Mission in La Cantina. And I just had a great time. I'd be in the Army during the daytime singing at night. And uh, and it was really fun. Did you become part of the, uh, the special services or something where you didn't have to carry a gun, you could carry a guitar and entertain the troops? No, I didn't because I, be, I actually became special services in golf because I'd worked at... Really? Yeah. I I was sitting in a bar in Monterey called the Warehouse, playing with the Dixieland band, and uh, there was this guy at the bar. We started talking. He said, "What did you do before the army?" And I said, "Well, I was in school and I I worked at golf courses." And he turned out to be the sergeant that ran the golf course at Fort Ord. And two days later, I was stationed at the golf course. So you were shot. <laughs> so nobody, nobody was shooting bullets at you. They were oh. just shooting golf balls your way. Oh, I'm just so lucky. What courses did you work around Seattle? I didn't work any in Seattle. I played all of them. Uh, I worked the ones in high school. What's your favorite courses in Seattle? Well, I love Port Ludlow, and West Seattle is a great pub. Seattle has great public courses. Yeah. West Seattle uh, and Spokane had a great course. Spokane had Indian Canyon. Oh, yeah. I played there. Yeah. Uh, and they threw me off the course, but I played there. Well, you're a good <laughs> golfer. You played Wait your whole minute. life. Why'd they throw you off the course? Uh, attempted murder. <laughs> but I, um, I've, I've heard you write about this a little bit in your book. I got to the point where I was throwing my clubs yeah. and using bad language, as we used to say in confession to the priest. And 
I decided, okay, I, I got to quit. I got to quit. So I, and I quit for five or more years. Wow. I said, if I can't, if I can't behave myself, mm-hmm. and I wasn't hurting anybody but myself. I was just being a big jerk. Uh, and so then I came back and now I have a lot of fun at it. I'm no better than I was, but right. at my age, I can't throw a golf club very far anyway. So that's well, where I'm at. I had, uh, I had dreams of playing professionally and then at Fort Ord, I met, I worked with uh, like three or four guys who went on a tour and, uh, they were just light years better than me. Yeah. So, yeah, it is very intimidating when you play with somebody really good, and it make, oh. they make it look easy, and, and I oh. always try to make it look hard. Yeah. <laughs> now you're down at Fort Ord, cutting the greens at golf courses, or what did you do? I I actually ran the, the pro shop. I stood behind the counter and saw golf balls and did stuff. And, and I was also at the time driving up to San Francisco to sing at the Drinking Gourd, which was another... Folk singer oh, bar. A great name. <laughs> Drinking Gourd. Man, that's a good name. And I the big star there. Was, big star there was Marty Ballin, who was in Jefferson Airplane. When the truth is found to be lies. He used to sing there. And, uh, but I just said. So in. your heyday at the beginning was kind of in the time of, uh, all those, those kinds of groups, the Kingston Trio and the Brothers Four and the, those kind of things. Absolutely. They were my so, heroes. Were they really your heroes or did, did yeah. you think, oh, these guys are kind of dorky. I'll do, I'll make fun of their music with my music. <laughs> Not really. Well, I, Mort, Mort saw. The chart goes like this, has two categories. Up here, we have the left wing. You can uh, shudder if you'd like. The left wing is made up of the Communist Party, which has a membership, I'm sorry to say, of 4,000, 3,000 of whom are FBI agents. <laughs> Over here, we have the right wing, which is made up of various people, uh, John Birch Society, capitalism, fascism, and finally, greed, if we can work it out. <laughs> and uh, the Smothers Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the two great big bells high up in the Catholic Tower... I mean, Catholic Tower, they made bring... a mistake. <laughs> My brother made a mistake. He said showers. I My brother mean... said Catholic showers. I didn't mean... <laughs> no, it was an accident. You I said it. You said it real clear. I know, I heard but it. I... <laughs> when did you first realize that you said it? Right away. Yeah, so did I. I think everybody realized oh, you said Catholic it. showers. <laughs> I, uh, Do you know anything at all about the Catholics? No. They'll get you. <laughs> who was the Harvard professor who wrote all the... Uh, Tom Lehrer. Tom Lehrer. He was my hero. I love Tom Lehrer. Yeah, he's my hero, too. I hold your hand in mine, dear. I press it to my lips. I take a healthy bite from your dainty fingertips. My joy. Still, I keep your hand as a precious souvenir. He's still around. Is he really? I'll be there. Yeah, he's 90. He's like 95 now. He's still oh, my God. Around. I don't know if he's still performing. Yeah. 
So, so, so you get out of the, I, I assume you're not still in the army, or whatever, <laughs> no. but you're out, you're, you're, you're out now. You've been AWOL for years, Mike. I was the only one who missed my, uh, my getting out date. I thought, I thought you got out the same date that you went in. Well, you get out the day before, and I didn't know that, so I was out playing golf. And he came and found me, and he said, "You got to sign out. <laughs> You're done here." Well, that couldn't have been bad news, except oh, that you lost terrific. your golf gig. But it was yeah. terrific. So now you're a liberated man. You're free of uh, your service to the country. And and what happens after that? Well, I stayed in Monterey, and I kept playing at the Mission Inn La Cantina, and I realized you can wear out your welcome. You know, because I couldn't come up with new material fast enough, and so who who can? I know, same crowd yeah. every night. So now, were you just doing your own thing then, or did you have an agent yet? Oh, I was doing my own thing. I was just uh, the way I got jobs is I'd sit in somewhere, and eventually they'd hire me. But uh, I was starving in Monterey and had no job. And uh, Brian Bressler, do you know Brian? Yes, I know the name. Yes. Well, Brian. Uh, I got together with him and we formed a duo. He was up in Portland and ah. actually it was a trio at first. It was a shaggy gorillas minus one buffalo fish. <laughs> <laughs> it was a trio at first. <laughs> well, Whatever happened to the gorilla, do you know? Oh, I don't know. Well, we had, we got a job in Portland singing on the back bar to, at a, Bar and across the street from us, uh, Pete Barbeauty was playing at a strip yeah. joint. <laughs> I don't think people, uh, and a lot of younger people who listen have not picked up one name that we've talked about so yeah, far, but I know Pete Barbeauty, Pete Barbeauty was really good and uh, oh. just, just had a very odd act. I don't even know how you'd describe it, Mike. Could you cry? I would describe it as too hip for the room. In every yeah, room yeah, he played. Beethoven was a genius, and nobody believed in him, but he believed in himself. And I think that's advice to all the young musicians. And Beethoven's own wife didn't believe in him. He said to his own wife, he said, someday I'm going to write a symphony. She said, you're going to write a symphony? <laughs> that guy was just unbelievable. Yeah, he was just really like he was. He was like uh, Einstein performing in front of a bunch of fourth graders. He was just so smart and clever. Um, and and you can always tell a comedian that is really good because the band is dying. Oh yeah. Well, you know, in my in my limited experience, if I can make the band or the orchestra laugh, then it's almost like I don't care about the audience. If those guys are absolutely. laughing. Absolutely. Well, Pete was a great musician. He started off as a jazz musician, and he had perfect yeah. pitch, you know. And but he did all jazz jokes and stuff, and so the band was right on top of it, and the crowd was trying to catch up. You're right. He, that's a perfect description. Too hip for the room. So, so now you're out and about and you're, you've got a partner, uh, but yeah. kind of thrust ourselves forward to the point where you're going to, uh, decide to be a solo. Yeah. Well, part of, you know, Ross talked about John Powell, his manager. Yeah. Let me, and, and, and we're talking about Ross Schaefer, of course, and yeah. John Powell. And was it, was John Powell Pete Barbuti's manager too? Yes. 
Yes. And and, uh, and who's the pianist? Um, Walt Wagner. Walt Wagner. So he had some he had some luminaries. Oh yeah, he was uh, he was he, he had all those Northwest acts. I don't know if you remember Beth Peterson, but she was just a dynamite folk singer. And the coast of gold, across the seven seas, and traveling on far and wide. So anyway, John came in to see Brian and I one night in Boise, Idaho. And Brian and I had been on the road too long, <laughs> and we were arguing on stage. <laughs> <laughs> like an old married couple. Uh, yeah. And so anyway, John uh became my manager and I split up with Brian. But Brian and I remained friends for like till he died uh two or three years ago. But he was a great guy. Just a terrific guy. And so did John just sign you up as his client or, yeah, or Brian too? He just signed me up, which was uh not a good thing. I don't know, that was awkward. Yeah, but, that would pretty much end end the partnership, I suppose. Yeah. So, is it in that time period that that you and Ross Schaefer met? I I, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, yeah. to almost live because I'm talking about what happened more immediately. But Ross told me the other day that he, long before almost live, he met you, and you are are a guy that has owned boats, and you uh -huh. had this big wooden boat, and and you would invite him out there, and he said. And and you would be so kind to him. You were so generous teaching how to write joke to him. Oh, and my. You weren't, you weren't getting anything out of it. You weren't making any money out of it. Wax is rhapsodic about what a generous person you were and that he learned so much from you. Well, that worked uh, That worked both ways. Like Ross, Ross was better in a lot of ways at the business than I was. <clears throat> Ross was the absolute best at handling a bad show. You know, when I did a bad show, when I bombed, I, I was just devastated. It just killed me. And Ross yeah. played football, you know, and when he had yeah. a bad game, he just shook it off and went on. And he did the same <laughs> with comedy. And uh, I really admired that. I mean, he really knew how to pick himself up and go stronger. And I learned, yeah. I learned that from him. Well, I guess you both helped each other then, didn't you? I also learned, uh, he was very, uh, matter of fact about deciding which jokes were good or bad. Like, uh, he'd say, this is a C or he and John Sharp would go through a routine and say, this is an A, this is a D, this is a C. And Jim Sharp. I'd fall in love with jokes and keep using them even if they didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time, one time I got the idea that I would wear one of these dog collar things, you know, when the dog is, is not supposed to bite itself or lick itself. Yeah. So I, I thought it'd be hilarious if people introduced it and well, Pat was, uh, we're lucky to have him here. He just sustained an injury recently, but trooper that he is, he's coming on stage. Would you welcome him? And then I come out wearing this dog cone thing and I thought it was just going to kill just the physical. Look of it. It never did anything. <laughs> I think people either thought it was stupid, which is probably was, yeah. or they thought, gee, maybe he really did hurt himself. <laughs> oh, that poor, that poor, poor man. Never oh. worked. I kept trying it though, like you did. Oh. I kept trying it. I believe, I believed in it and oh yeah, it's hard to let that stuff go. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. The audience is always right, ultimately. Yeah. And you can learn from audiences. You can learn that you, you phrased it wrong or a lot of different ways to go at a joke. And I never wanted to tell jokes. I wanted to be like Tom Lehrer and do intelligent, uh, witty things. Well, whether you, whether you knew it or not, Ross thought you were a great joke writer and he's, he's, he says he learned a lot from you. Uh, you, you would talk about to your audience about owning a wooden boat. Oh yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I may not have this exactly right, but you'd say my boat is named Wataga. Which is an Indian word meaning varnish all summer. Yeah, you got it perfect. <laughs> that was oh, good. that was it. <laughs> now that's a good joke. It that's is a, a good solid joke. joke. I was very proud of that joke. And then later, later when you were working cruise ships, uh, he hmm. remembered some of your lines would be like, uh, "I love working cruise ships because you get to work uh, in front of old people and their parents." <laughs> yes. Yes. And you said, I love, I love working cruise ships because I finally found my audience. The only problem is my audience is going to be dead in eight years. <laughs> yeah. Good jokes. Those are good jokes. They are. They, it was, it was, I like the cruise ships. I enjoyed them. But, but you're working bars and now you're pr- working bigger venues and you're moving along and now it's maybe getting into the 1970s uh-huh. or so. Um, and then. You actually get a couple of TV shows uh, in yes. that time frame, even, be- even before Almost Live came along. Tell us about those. Well, my, my manager, John Powell, got those, and it was up in Canada. And it started out with a, uh, a show on CBC in Vancouver called In the Round. And it was a great little show. Johnny Mathis, and they've given me 30 seconds to tell you about Mike Noon. Personally, I think that's a little too much time. Mike and I have been working together the past three years, and it's been rough. We play golf all day, then we do a concert at night. Mike puts in as much as 30 minutes a day of solid work. It's a terrible grind, and he deserves a break. I hope his TV show is a big success and makes lots of money, because next time I do one of these spots, I want to get paid. There was a nightclub in Vancouver called The Cave, and Las Mm -hmm. Vegas acts used to come up there to work on their act before they went down to Las Vegas. And so there were some kind of like, kind of like off Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. And so there were some major acts that came through Vancouver. And I'd like to introduce you to a group that's had hit records all over the world and America and Europe and Australia and Japan. And they're here with us tonight from Sweden, a wonderful group, ABBA. <laughs> And they come on our TV show to promote their show at the cave. And, uh, so the biggest one was Duke Ellington. I mean, I'm, Oh my God. I've got this little TV show in Vancouver with an audience and a stage and, and Duke Ellington's there. Money is still, a, a, a byproduct. You know, but when you write a tune, your reward is when you hear it, you know, or you write a play or whatever it is. And when you see it, that's your reward. Whatever else comes out of it is byproduct. I suppose we could persuade you to play a little bit. Just oh, sure. Oh. Can 
I tell you that? Can I tell you this? This, I I looked this up and I and I read your book, of course, and you mentioned oh. Duke Ellington, which sounds unbelievable. Yeah. You also had the Mills Brothers. Yeah. Again, young, youngsters would have to look them up, but they were huge with songs like this. I'm gonna buy a paper doll that I can call my own. Her doll that other fellows cannot steal. And then you had O.C. Smith. Yeah. And, in, and then in your book, you say, I don't remember what his hit song was, but I just remember his name. And this was his song. Oh, God didn't make this green It don't rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. And it was gigantic. This is a huge hit. I can't remember it. That would be devastating to the poor man. But here's the thing, Mike. I, I look up your name on Wikipedia, and the first thing that comes up is Noon at Night, which yeah. the, the show you mentioned in the round changed its name to Noon at Night. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. Which I think Noon at Night is a really good name, by the way. Oh, I do, That's too. very clever. It reminds me of a DJ friend of mine. Uh, I, his first name's not important, but his last name was Wood. And he got a DJ, he got a job overnight on a, on a rock station, early morning show, and he named the show Waking Up with Wood. Which I thought was the greatest name ever. That is terrific. I thought the radio station would say, no, you can't use that, but he, they never caught on. So he, oh he my God. It. That is terrific. I love, it. I, love it. I love it. So how long did that show uh, on the CBC last? Before we go on, I think we just passed the highlight of this interview. I mean, waking up with <laughs> well, wood. <laughs> I'm gonna remember that forever. <laughs> I'm glad you, I'm glad you like it too. I was, I was so taken with that. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, so, what were you gonna uh, say? <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember. Oh, I was gonna say, didn't you, well, here's the thing though. On your, on the uh, website, on, it's a Wikipedia page about that show of yours. Right. And it says, among the guests were Eleanor Collins, Terry David Mulligan, right, and Chief Dan George. Yes, that's it. They don't mention Duke Ellington. <laughs> they don't mention Mills Brothers. They don't mention O.C. Smith. They mention Chief Dan George. Well, Chief Dan George was really famous at the time. I, I know, I know he was. But how, how can they leave Duke Ellington? I know, I know. That's just we had Abba on the show. You did, yeah. Hey, didn't you also have Rolf Harris on the show? This is the low point of my life. Actually, we had Rolf Harris, and later on, I opened for Bill Cosby in Lake Tahoe. So yeah. I've I've worked with the two most famous, uh, infamous people in the last twenty years. Is Bill Cosby coming at you with music and fun? And if you're not careful, you may learn something before it's done. So let's get ready, okay? Hey, hey, hey! This, uh, for, for youngsters out there, this was a gigantic novelty record by Rolf Harris. Yeah, back in the day. All together now, tiny kangaroo down, sport. Tiny kangaroo down. Tiny kangaroo down, sport. Tiny kangaroo down. And so then, uh, it turns out, of course, not while you had him on the air, 
but uh, later it's it's discovered he's from Australia and it, it he was uh, pedophilic, wasn't he? Yes, yes, and yeah, uh, yeah. and that'll that'll kill knew? your career every time. Yeah. Oh my oh, no. God, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, oh, I just read. Did you hear that Bill Cosby got out? Yes, as we're recording this, he just got sprung. Yeah, this morning. So yeah. In fact, uh, I got a call from him. He wants your phone number. He's looking for an opening act. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know if you're interested, but yeah, just just think about it. Uh-huh. So so the, so then the CBC show, Canadian Broadcasting Company show. Yeah. And you did it out of Vancouver. That, as all shows must, ends. Uh-huh. Uh, but then you got another TV show, and this one closer to home in Spokane, right? Oh a yeah, series of shows, right? Yeah, the the public uh, TV station in Spokane uh, set up shows. I did one in a it was like a nightclub, and we did an hour special, and they put it on all over the country, and it and it worked for them. So I ended up doing six or seven of those shows, and uh, and that was amazing because I do like an hour show every year and I really learned how to write a show I think there's a balance in life I think there's positive and negative animals know that that's why dogs are positive cats are negative it's true isn't it you get lost with a dog no food no water that dog will be saying hey this isn't a problem this is an opportunity I'll run for help, save my master, get my picture in the paper. You get lost with a cat. No food, no water, that cat will be saying, well, looks like you're going to (laughs) die. I really learned how to write a show. Politics has gone the other way. Everyone's negative. Man, they're mean, aren't they? Bitter, attacking. So I've started the negative political party. We're against everything. We're against good schools. We feel if we can keep the kids stupid, they won't take away our jobs. I really learned how to write a show. We're against Prozac. We feel you should treat depression the old-fashioned way, with liquor. (laughs) And then I forgot. (laughs) I got Was that just you by yourself in those shows, or did you bring guests on? No, it was just me by myself on stage. Wow. They ended up in a great theater in Spokane called the Met Theater, and it was just gorgeous, and it was maybe my all-time favorite place to play. And I just come out, and I I do an hour and a half of material, and they take an hour out of it, and then they just play it around the country. What would you do if you won the lottery? We all think about that, don't we? And it was stupid. I mean, because the chances of winning the lottery are about the same as the chances of Elvis and Sasquatch walking through that door singing, You Light Up My Life. (laughs) It's not going to happen. But it's fun to think about, isn't it? (laughs) Because we all do weird things, but if you're rich, you can do big weird things. 
If I won the lottery, the first thing I'd do is buy a Yugo, put a Ferrari engine in it. <laughs> Just blow the doors off Porsches. It'd be fun to see the look on those guys' faces, wouldn't it? <laughs> if I won the lottery, I'd build a gated community for the different. You ever look at gated communities? They're all the same. The houses are the same. People are the same. Cars are the same. I'd, I'd build it for the different. I wouldn't let anyone in unless they were different. I'd be strict, too. What's that? You're a gay Republican scuba diver for peace? I'm sorry, we've already got one of those. <laughs> well, I don't know if that became that happened before or after Almost Live, but let's get into Almost Live. Okay. And how did how Ross and Jim Sharp? You, I think you called John Sharp earlier because he's oh. such a good friend of yours. <laughs> uh, did I call him John? <laughs> I have I another maybe. friend named John Sharp. <laughs> That's funny. Quick thinking. <laughs> I I had a uh, I had a a boss at King TV when I was working at King TV. Yeah, wonderful man. His name he was the general manager of the station. His name was Sturgis Dorrance. I remember that Sturgis name. Sturgis was his first. Do you? Yeah. How can you forget it? I, w- I can't have you ever remember met anybody Jim named Sturgis before. <laughs> so Sturgis Dorrance has a party at his house, and he invites employees to come, and it's a Christmas party or something at his house. And my wife gets, uh, you know, off talking with him by herself and, and, and unknown to Sturgis, people who, around him who worked for him, you know, you always got to come up with a nickname for your boss, mm-hmm. kind of a wise guy nickname. And I, and I would always call him Stu, <laughs> uh, but never, never, he didn't know that was his nickname. <laughs> That's why I call him Stu. But I tell him, I tell my wife about, Hey, you know what Stu did today? He did that. Mm-hmm. So, so at this party, my wife says, Hey, Stu, uh, I was just wondering if you, and he, he goes, wait a minute, what'd you call me? Oh, uh, <laughs> Stu, uh, nobody's ever called me a Stu before. <laughs> oh, well, you know what it is? I had a friend in high school named Sturgis and we called him Stu. And, and, and I was so impressed the way she lied her way out of Oh that. my God. Cause nobody, nobody had a friend named Sturgis. <laughs> Got to be the only guy named that in the world. Absolutely. So, uh, almost live begins in 1984. They, King TV was casting about for, to try this idea of doing a comedy sketch show. Right. And Ross gets tapped to be the host after they've done a search. Jim Sharp comes on to be the head writer, and mm-hmm. and uh, and then I think pretty early on they realize, oh my God. At that time, they were doing an hour, and it's hard to fill an hour. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to do? And and so they thought, wait a minute. Ross said, I know a guy. <laughs> Tell And you take it from there. How, how did they tap you? Uh, I wish you didn't ask this because I honestly don't remember. I know Ross got me on, and basically what I did on the show were just, uh, you know, I'd write something and I'd do it on the show and just read it off the teleprompter. And, but you did, but you did a lot of songs, a lot of your songs too. I, yeah, I guess. I remember you, you were a real standout for me. And oh. th- this was a, when the show was in its real, real beginnings. Right. Uh, it, it, it was yet to become more of a slicker half hour right. sketch comedy show. It, it was a much more of a full, 
fledged variety show with a monologue. They had a live band. Right. And yeah. You would often come on, maybe not every week, but quite often to perform a song on guitar and just sitting on a stool. That's right. One of your hilarious. Yeah. That's right. And then, uh, and it was at that time that, uh, I realized how good Ross was at, uh, being a host and being an MC. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and Jim Sharp was, uh, John. A really bright guy. He went on to have a great career, didn't he? In TV. Yes, he did. Yeah. He wound up as the vice president at Comedy Central. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I lost yeah. touch with him. Ross and I yeah. have kept in contact over the years, but uh, I lost touch with Jim. I really liked him. He was a nice guy. Yeah, he is. He's a, he's a nice man and he's, he's, uh, if Ross is bombastic and, and confident, I don't, I wouldn't call Ross bombastic, but he, no. he's much more effusive. Yeah. Uh, Jim is just about as laid back as Clint Eastwood. I mean, he, but, but writes great jokes and, and obviously had a great comic instinct. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so do you, so you, you're telling me you essentially remember nothing about how you got on the show or, or what you did while you were there. I feel terrible about this because when we first started talking about doing this podcast, I thought, yeah, I got to remember all the stuff about almost live. And I came up with zip. I was just, <laughs> it was just awful. <laughs> well, you're being honest. You could make stuff up and I wouldn't know. Well, Pat, I'm 82 years old. You know, you got to look at that too. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, so it was a long time ago, but geez, I, I know I could think better than that. No, that's plenty. That is plenty. It, well, it's great. You, uh, maybe about that time or certainly after that time, you redirected your career. Oh, before I get to your life as a cruise ship entertainer. Yeah. Uh, and I know you probably don't want to talk about this, but <laughs> I know where I'm you're watching, going. <laughs> I'm, I'm don't go there. Don't go with, there. <laughs> uh, I'm watching these shows. This is something I actually think you should be proud of. And you write it in your book. If you didn't put it in your book, I wouldn't bring it up, okay. but. Every comedian of of a certain age, whether it's Jerry Seinfeld, Letterman, Robin Williams, anybody, they all talk about their goal, which was to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Right. I mean, that they knew was, could springboard their career. Right. From Hollywood, The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. This is Ed McMahon, along with Doc Severinsen and the NBC Orchestra, inviting you to join Johnny and his guests, Buddy Hackett, John Lithgow, and another segment of Moron Movies. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny. <laughs> and so, and so, Mike Noon... Mike Noon, against all odds, because everybody wants to be on this show, but most right. people never come close. Mike Noon gets a shot on the Tonight Show with well, Johnny Carson. Well, I was Brian and I got a shot. We we're still we were working as a duo at that time, and so. so so what year would this have been, roughly? Oh Jesus, I don't know. In the seventies, sometime, I guess. I have no idea. Yeah, and. Yeah. So we get on the show and we're scared to death, right? We got on the show oh, yeah. because of the Kennedys. Did I, was that in the book? You, you rather buried the lead in that part of the book. So you got on the show because of the Kennedys. 
Ryan and I were singing in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho. Oh, never mind. Never mind. It probably isn't a very good story. <laughs> we'll no, no, you got to tell us because so, of the Kennedys. The Kennedys were skiing in Sun Valley every year, and they used to come in to watch our show. And there's Bobby and Ethel, and uh, and so they were the ones who got us on the Tonight Show, and we went back. You uh, you uh, must uh, see this uh, young entertainer that I uh, saw in Sun Valley. Uh, he would be a terrific Johnny. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, let's put him on. That's right. Is that how it happened? That's basically That's how great. it happened. So we went back to Washington, D.C., and we're hanging out with the Kennedys at their house, and we're driving around oh, my God. with Bobby and That's Teddy. Gone. And oh, I'm just so, you know, I'm a shy guy anyway, and I'm and I was just so overwhelmed. I mean, just oh, yeah. blown away by this. And we're, in, you know, in parties with Pierre Salinger and all these people. And Jesus. And then we go to the Tonight Show. And we're going to be on the Tonight Show. And the first night, we're all backstage and we're set to go on. And yeah. Robert Goulet. Do you remember Robert Goulet? If ever. I would leave you. <laughs> yes. It wouldn't be in summer. Well, he's on and he goes long. And so Johnny says, well, we had an act that was going to come on tonight, but we're <laughs> running along, so we'll bring him back tomorrow night. So we're scared to death already. And now we got to wait another 24 hours, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And God damn, I'm just, you know, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I'm just terrified. Of course not. You know, we've been playing. Thanks a lot, Goulet. Yeah, we've been playing Boise, Idaho, and Helena, Montana, and all of a sudden we're playing The Tonight Show. And so we get on, and Brian says, let's start out with your song. So we start out with a song that I wrote. And I forgot the words. And I just... You forgot the words? I forgot the words that I wrote to this song. And... (laughs) Oh, my God. That sounds like a bad dream. It's just a train wreck, you know. And then... Oh, jeez. And then we go to our comedy piece, (laughs) and it it was just awful. Just awful. Oh. Oh. Bob Peterson, who we talked about, the photographer, he has a video yeah. of that. And he keeps threatening to show it to me. And I tell him I'll never go to his house again if I have to watch it. Uh, well, oh, I might yes. try to, I might try to, to obtain it for a future episode. Oh. I don't want to embarrass you, but, oh. uh, but on the other hand, isn't it kind of funny? Isn't it more fun to tell that story than if you, that you, rather than that you were triumphant? It wasn't worth no, the story. No, no, I'm not. What am I saying? No. Of course it's not better. Oh God, oh. I love it. I just, I love stories like that. I, you know, you know, I, I default to people who can be self-effacing about, <laughs> about things that just come a little bit short of their dreams. But, oh. uh, th- but that didn't, that didn't head you off from continuing your career. And then you got into the world of cruise ships. And well, that, that life to me is very fascinating. Love. Exciting and new. 
in between that, I also did what Ross did, and that was a lot of opening act stuff. And uh, oh yeah, you did big big names. You opened for Johnny Mathis. Chances are, cause I wear a silly grin. Ben Vereen and join us, leave your fields to flowers. Join us, leave your cheese to sour. Yeah, and Aunt Margaret. Aunt Margaret. Yeah. Hubba hubba. Yeah. Bye bye bye. I'm gonna miss you so. Well, that was a story there because I'd worked a lot in Reno and Tahoe and I was very comfortable. But then John called me up and said, uh, I got your book with Aunt Margaret at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. And I said, John, I'm not a Las Vegas act. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm this guy who comes out and sits on a stool and does comedy. You know, and he said, yeah. no, no, this will be fine. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. Again, I'm just terrified. I'm looking at another Tonight Show, you know. <laughs> and so I flew down to Las Vegas, and they lost my luggage, and they lost my guitar. Oh, jeez. And so I go. What, what, at what point did you <laughs> say, you know what, I should become a journalist? <laughs> that was at one of the points right there. And so. And Margaret's husband says, well, go down to the men's store at Caesar's Palace and get some clothes. Well, they've got like $700 loafers, <laughs> something like this. And the most uncomfortable clothes I've ever worn. You know, I'm a hippie folk singer. <laughs> and then I borrow a 12-string guitar, which is what I was playing at the time, from a stagehand. And, uh, and I go, and I don't remember the show at all, but apparently it worked. And, uh. Well, I guess so. And you, and you got a new set of clothes out of it. <laughs> and that, that story is in your book too. Yeah. I, I'm going to mention the book right now before I forget. And I'll, oh. I'll mention it before we're wrapping up here, but. Thank it you. It is called a semi-Buddhist ex-comedian golf junkie finds joy in the kingdom of Thailand, which might set a record for the longest title. It will yeah. include your name, Mike Noon. I also got a copy of a, a fictional book you've written called Jail Time, which yeah. is really fun. Oh, yeah. thanks. Uh, I'll mention though. Can people get the, can they get, find those titles on, uh, they're on, on uh, they're on Amazon. You, uh, Amazon. Yeah. yeah. You just search my name on Amazon and there, there's three books out now. And, uh, I just, uh, during That's the lockdown, more than I have good job <laughs> there during lockdown. I just started writing and, uh, and it's been fun. It's got, a, it's a lot of fun, especially the one about how you found joy in the kingdom of Thailand. I really recommend this. This is really fun. You talk about the wife that you are so head over heels with and your career and all the <laughs> crazy thing, places you've played from from uh, Las Vegas to little bars in Montana and all in between. Oh, really yeah. good stuff. Very, very entertaining. Thank you. Uh, so, but but tell me about the cruise ship sure. life, which you did for many, many years. Yeah. What's, was... what's it like? What's it like for a guy to play a cruise ship? What's, what is a, what, what happens during the 10 days or two weeks or whatever you're out there? Well, uh, I would in like in a two week cruise, I'd do like three or four shows. And so like playing the bars in the Northwest was terrific for me because I had to fill four hours, you know, so I had to learn how to do a lot of material. A lot of comedy com- club comedians come out on the ships and they got 45 minutes worth of material and they couldn't, they couldn't do four shows. <laughs> so it was a big advantage for me. Right. Right. Basically, uh, it was, 
it worked well for me because I love seeing the world. God, what a joy that was. And the ship, the line did, I worked, did you Did you literally travel all over the world? Yeah, the first line I worked on was Royal Viking Line, which was incredibly good cruise line. It was top of the line. And they had three ships. They had one in America, one in uh, Europe, and one in uh, Asia. And so I got to see the world. And because I was successful, I got to choose my cruises. So I just went wherever I wanted to go. It was terrific. So you, you work uh, uh, three or four shows, let's say, over two weeks. What did you do with the rest of your time? Well, uh, every port I'd go ashore and just, I found that I love to wander. I skipped all the tours and everything. I'd just get off and start walking. And I love the port. I love seeing how the world works. And you know, I lived on a boat. And just to see boats in different parts of the world. Whatever floats your boat, floats your boat, floats your boat. They're so totally different. You know, it's just amazing. You know, just to be in St. Petersburg or to be in Portofino or any of these places I never dreamed I'd be able to see. It was just awesome. That that does sound awesome. And then you were particularly, obviously, were taken with Thailand. Mm-hmm. And at some point you're saying, okay, uh, this has been fun, but uh, it's time to retire. And what people should know, and you know this better than me, obviously, Mike, is that you made some good residual money on some of the songs you wrote and sold to people like Ray Stevens. Right. John Davidson. It was Ray Stevens, basically, and uh, he recorded four of my songs. And uh, I didn't think much of it. John sold the song, to, he sold the haircut song to Ray Stevens, and I thought, okay. Uh-huh. And then the first. This is the haircut song. Well, when you get a haircut, you better go back home. When you get a haircut, get a barber you have known. Since you were a little bitty boy sitting in a booster chair. Cause you might look like Larry Moore or Curly if a stranger cuts your hair. Well, people gotta hear the whole song, so I'll play the rest of it at the end of the podcast. Yeah, and the first check was ten thousand dollars. <laughs> Boy, I was just, I thought, okay, how nice is this? That's sweet. That's oh, sweet. so sweet. And there's the checks also now are coming in like twelve cents. <laughs> yeah. Thirty two cents. Yeah, I got a <laughs> I was the I was the announcer on the Bill Nye the Science Guy show and I just received a check <laughs> the other day. This wasn't for one show, this is for several shows. Yeah. Fourteen cents. Yeah, I've got those. It cost them 50 cents to send it to me, of course. Absolutely. And uh, it, was, it was just funny. You know, I, I should have framed them. You know, that's what we should do with those checks. Watch them get smaller and smaller. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, but all, but all of that, of course, uh, helped it, it pave the path for you to fi- figure out a way that you could retire. You decided on Thailand. You fell in love with the place. And that's mm-hmm. where you met your wife. My wife is Gentina, and it was a blind date. I had been here for two years in Chiang Mai, and I really didn't want to get married again because there are a lot of horror Wait. stories over How here. How many times were you married? I was married twice. The first one was a total disaster. 
second one was a lot longer and then became not good. And uh, so I wasn't going to get Sorry, married. I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. I get that. So I wasn't going to get married. I just wanted to meet someone to hang out with, go to dinner. And, and, yeah. and so this guy who lived in the same apartment as I lived in was going out with a girl who worked at a university. And they fixed me up with her friend, Jinthana. And I'll never forget this. I picked her up at Airport Plaza, which is a mall here in Chiang Mai. And I waited in front and she came down the stairs and she had the most beautiful smile I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. And she's tiny. She's like five feet tall. And so I I thought, oh, my God, this girl is beautiful. And we went out to dinner and we just hit it off, you know, and it was magic. And we went together for about six or eight months. She was the one who wanted to get married. I told her I'd never get married again. Also, that was absolutely stupid because she's younger than I am by like uh, 30 years. (laughs) I mean, it's just 30 years. 30 years, it's just, and I told her, you don't want to do this, you know. Uh, And so she was the one that, Kind of wanted to, and uh, and it's just been magic. Uh, and when you marry, and of course, Mike, when you marry someone, you also marry their family. And so now right. you're, you're married into a family that I think you're pretty fond of, too. Absolutely. Uh, we lived in this big old house that, uh, not actually, it was a big new house when we got married that her sister and brother-in-law built. It was a family house. And, uh. I assume they played the haircut song at your wedding. <laughs> Just a guess. So we moved in with her sister, who is a banker. She's a bank manager. And her brother, who is a policeman. And they have two children who are the most amazing kids I've ever been around in my life. They're just awesome. And That's great. So That's I moved great. in and her mother. And so we all lived together in this big house. And the house is a story. Did you, we got married here and it was a combination marriage and housewarming, right? And, and so we had this big party afterwards and every Thai party has fireworks. And there's Chinese fireworks and they're just big and huge and loud. Well, one of them didn't go off. And this big, and this drunk cousin went over to see what was wrong. <laughs> well, terrible story. It went off. Is that, is, is that old three fingers, that cousin? <laughs> it's worse than that. He, he, oh, got, he ended up in the hospital and got killed. And it, Oh, Mike, I, did, I didn't know that. You didn't mention that. Well, it was horrible, but he wasn't a nice guy basically. And he got killed. As a result, we couldn't move into the house because there were ghosts. And in Thailand, ghosts are very real. And we had had to wait two years to move into the house before it was okay. 
But then, well, how, how did they? How did they know the ghost had moved out? Apparently, they know stuff that I don't know. But uh, <laughs> well, well, I'm sorry. This story took a, such a tragic uh, turn. I but, am too, and I probably shouldn't have told it. And I'm sorry that. I did. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. This will be deleted from the podcast. You can edit it. <laughs> okay, good. So now you spend your time with Gentina and you play golf a lot. Yeah. Can I, I, I want to mention that you had a bout with a health issue a few years ago. How are you doing now? I'm doing fine. It was actually, that was one of the reasons I retired because I had prostate cancer and they operated and they didn't get it all. And, uh, I had a friend, a doctor that I went to the university with, and uh, he took care. He was magical. He and his wife took care of me. And uh, so I asked him honestly as a friend, how much longer did I have? And he said 10 years. And so I that's when I retired and came to Thailand. And that was 15 years ago. <laughs> so, Thailand adds five years to your life. <laughs> or he's a good doctor, but a poor mathematician. I don't know, but, uh. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And man, I've, God, it's been a kick. I, I could talk to you forever. You're, I'm sure mm. I have not even begun to crack the lid on all the stories you have for all the years. Although it sounds to me like you can't remember most of them. <laughs> so. Well, you've been a great host because, uh, I was sure hoping you could open things up and and bring back some memories that I'd forgotten, and you've done that, and I I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. It's been a joy. Enjoy your life there. Say hi to Gentina and her family, and uh, and, her, and the ghost if you run into him. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast, produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. Special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw, Almost Live's chief archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman. Well, Butte, Montana, just passing through. One thing I just had to do. Had to get a haircut, and I was worried for my hair. I had a feeling of impending doom. The minute I stepped into that room, laid my eyes upon that barber chair. Oh, yeah. It was a macho barber shop. Hair dryers mounted on a rifle rack. Wasn't no mirrors. Barber chair was a Peterbilt. Barber walked in, he is huge. Seven feet tall, 300 pounds of spring steel and rawhide. Wearing a hard hat, chewing a cigar, had a t-shirt on, said, I hate musicians. Threw me in the chair, sneered and said, wouldn't it be, pal? Now, a lot of people would be intimidated in a situation like this. I was not. I am what I am, play my piano, sing my little songs. I looked him right in the eye. I said, I'm a logger. Just up from Coos Bay, Oregon. Been topping trees. Quite possibly the toughest man in the entire world. He said, all right. He gave me a haircut and I walked out of there. My hair was gone. 
Make Kojak look like Bill Golden. Yeah, had a tremendous craving to operate heavy equipment. Now you may think that that Butte, Montana haircut's the worst any man could ever get. Wrong. Well, a few months later I was in L.A. Trucking along on a smoggy day. Needed a haircut so bad I looked like Bozo the Clown. I was looking shaggy, not too good I'd put it off as long as I could Lord, I hate to get a haircut out of town Well, I walked in, realized immediately That this guy was into punk rock The walls were done in black leather Had chains and whips and handcuffs hanging on Barber walked in, he had orange hair Black mascara Stainless steel teeth Black leather jacket with zinc studs He threw me in the chair Hit me a couple of times Whap, whap Chained me down to a Nazi flag over Said, I'm gonna tell you something Might make you a little nervous I laughed <laughs> I said, what could possibly make me nervous? He said, I'm gay No problem I'm not threatened in any way. I mean, I'm secured my manhood. Everything's cool. I am what I am. Play my little piano, sing my little song. I looked him right in the eye and said, I'm a logger. Played football in high school. I was in the Marine Corps. He said, all right, and he gave me a haircut. I walked out of there, friends. My hair was purple. Well, at least that mohawk section down the middle was purple. Had a white streak down one side. Other side looked like Mr. T. Had a couple safety pins in my cheeks. Felt a teeny bit conspicuous. Luckily, my next job was in San Francisco. Shoot, I got up there, I didn't even stand out at all. Wasn't even close. Those people thought I was an insurance salesman. Well, a few months later, I was way down south. Grits and gravy and a hush your mouth My hair so long I start to look like a man in drag It was then that the sheriff came up and said Boy, you got too much hair on your head You better get yourself a haircut or a dog tag Well, when I stepped into the shop I realized immediately that I was dealing with a born-again barber Don't see too many barber shops with a steeple Had an organ in the corner Choir. An usher led me to the barber chair. Barber walked in, started saying grace. Oh Lord, for these haircuts we are about to receive, may we be truly thankful. Dominus possum pox proboscis postmortem et to be faithful a carborundum. He was sort of half Baptist, half Catholic, kind of cactus. He started cutting my hair and preaching at the same time. I mean, he's a wild man. Scissors and razors are flying around my head. He's talking about liquor and wild women and music and sex and the evils of dancing and the music business in general. Then he looked down at me and he said, what do you do for a living? Now, I'm not ashamed of what I do for a living. Working bars and casinos, around liquor and wild women. I just play my piano, sing my little songs. I looked him right in the eye and said... I run this church for loggers. When you get a haircut, be sure to go back home. When you get a haircut, 
get a barber you have known Since you were a little bitty boy Sitting in a booster chair Or you might look like Larry Moore Curly if a stranger cuts your hair